Please take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Luke 5. I sang that song particularly in light of this morning's message. Notice my voice is a little scratchy this morning. Probably wouldn't have uh, sung that if I didn't want it to undergird um, what we're going to learn today. Luke 5. Verses 27 through 39 this morning, we'll finish the chapter, the title of the sermon, New Wine. Jesus has called four of his disciples. He has shown his power over the demonic realm, over illness, over the fish of the sea. The whole of creation bows to his command. He then shows them that he has power on earth to forgive sins. With the paralytic who comes in through the roof, we talked about that last week, Jesus desires to heal. It's not just that he can heal. It's not just that he has the authority and the power, but he has, through his will, a desire to reach out, a desire to save. It was mentioned to me after the service last week in one of the parallel passages to this one. As the man came to him and said, Jesus, if thou canst, thou if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. That I believe is in the Mark passage. The scriptures say that Jesus was moved with compassion. And indeed, that was the idea of last week's message. That Jesus not only can, but, but will, but wants to deliver, wants to save, wants to heal, wants to renew. He's aching for us to receive everything that he desires us to have. And the only thing standing between him And us is us. All of this was intended to lay a gentle foundation to the religious nation upon which, uh, into which Jesus went, this Jewish nation. And this foundation is intended to be a foundation upon which they were to build, this religious nation, a new way of thinking, to transition their mindset from something old to something new. And today we're going to be first introduced in the book of Luke to this new thing. Jesus has lived it. He's shown it. He's exemplified it. He's taught it. But now we're going to see him specifically mention it. A new thing, which today is the only thing. A new way, which has become and is indeed the only way. So for the last 2,000 years of history, the church has operated within the context of this new and living way. Introduced to the religious leaders by Jesus Christ himself in Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. And in verse 27 and 28, we read this. And after these things, he went forth, that's Jesus, and saw a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, follow me. And he left all, rose up, and followed him. After these things, the text tells us, the healing of the paralytic man who was not just healed, but who had been declared forgiven of his sins by the one who claims authority that only God himself has. Now he goes forth and he sees a publican named Levi. Now to this point, point Jesus has, in the record of Luke, called four men. Simon, Andrew, James, and John. All men who are devout Jews, all men who are in the synagogue, who are doing what they're supposed to do. But now we see a new thing. Luke did not mention explicitly those four, but those four forsook all and followed. This is a fifth man, and he is a publican. Many of you are familiar with who the publicans were as we step into the New Testament. They were Jewish men hired to collect public revenue. They were tax collectors. The taxes were collected not for Israel's benefit, but for Rome's benefit. They were taxed by Rome. And as such, Israel saw themselves as tributes, as a nation who was under the thumb of strangers and foreigners. And when the taxes came around in any given year, That tax was a reminder to Israel that they were not free. That tax was a reminder to Israel that they had overlords who were were asking the Jews to pay them. And so the publicans were a reminder of Israel's servitude, of Rome's occupation. The Jews did not like publicans. Publicans. 
publicans were expected to take a certain amount based upon the census of their area by, by each person they were expected to collect a certain amount, just like with taxes today. But another reason why people didn't like publicans, not only because they were Jews who were representing a foreign government and that foreign government's hostile takeover, but also because the publicans of that day had very little accountability in their job. They were told to go out and to collect the taxes. They knew, the government knew, how much from each person and region they were to collect. And as long as that publican came back to their, at the end of their job with that amount of money, Rome was satisfied. But the amount that they needed was not always the amount that they asked for. Oftentimes, the publicans would take or would ask for, would require far more than what Rome was asking for, and they would take the excess. So if you, if you owed, as an example, Rome $10, the publican would come and he'd say, you owe Rome $20. And you'd give Rome that $20, and the publican would take that $10 and say, yep, Rome, I collected. And the other $10, he'd put into his pocket. And so publicans were not loved. Just as the IRS today is not exactly a people that... Uh, that, uh, a group of people that we would say we, we really enjoy today. Nobody that has collected taxes for any government um, is popular. So too were the publicans. But the publicans weren't just unpopular, they were traitors. Because they were Jews collecting these taxes for a foreign government. We gain a little bit of insight into the publicans from Luke 19 and the account of Zacchaeus. Now, we'll come to Luke 19 in several months. But in Luke 19, verses 2, and then I'll skip to verses 7 and 8, we read this. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. We move on to verse 7, and the text says, And when they had saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was going to be a guest with a man that is a sinner. Zacchaeus, they said he's a sinner because he's a publican. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. So we see a man named Zacchaeus, and he is a chief among the publicans. So he's a tax collector. And, and, and as, as such, by default, the Jews labeled him a sinner. This is not a man that's a friend of Israel. This is not a man that's a friend of God's law. They saw him as a thief. They saw him as deceitful. They saw him as a liar. They saw him as having sold out to a foreign government. But notice after Zacchaeus', Zacchaeus repentance, the scriptures say he vows to give half of his goods to the poor. But then notice that next bit. It's in yellow here. If I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. The idea of false accusation is this thing that we're talking about that he accused people of having a higher tax liability than they had. And with the force of the Roman government behind him, he extracted from people more taxes than was right so that he could become rich. And he says, to any person that I falsely accuse, I'm going to restore unto him fourfold what I took from him. So that's the idea of the Pharisee. So these publicans were hated by the Jews, and it's important to understand that Levi is a Hebrew name. He's a, he's a Jewish man. This is not a, a Roman official from Rome. This is a Jewish man collecting taxes. Not all publicans necessarily were Jews, but this publican is, and he's a hated guy. One of the hate, most hated classes in all of Israel. And to this man, Levi, Mark calls him Levi the son of Alphaeus. The Gospel of Matthew calls him Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, Jesus says, follow me. Now, this is a new thing. This is different. Sure, it's one thing when Jesus goes to the religiously devout and he says, follow me. That makes sense, right? Jesus is going to get followers among the devout. But now he's going to a publican, a Jewish man who's in the pocket of the Roman government, and he says, follow me. It's significant to note that this publican is the same Matthew by the way, who wrote the gospel that we know as is Matthew. Matthew the publican, Levi, became Matthew the gospel writer. Jesus says, follow me. And in response, we read that this publican left all, rose up, 
and followed him. A man of wealth and influence, a man of insight into the Roman system, but he leaves it all behind to follow Christ. How significant is that? It reminds us that it doesn't matter if you're poor or rich. It doesn't matter if you're great or small. It doesn't matter if you're honored or not. The same standard is over all men. Jesus says, follow me. Would to God we could have such a heart. Would to God that we could find it in our hearts to leave all. Just fill in the blank with the most precious material or the most precious emotional thing you have. Leave that and follow Christ. This is what Levi did. This is what we ought to do as well. Levi leaves all. Verse 29 says, And Levi made him a great feast in his own house. And there was a great company of publicans and others that sat down with them. This same Levi, Matthew, son of Alphaeus, makes a great feast in his house. And unto this feast he invites Jesus. He invites the other followers of him at the time. At least Simon Andrew, James, and John. And he also invites his fellow publicans to be there. Perhaps he was seeking to use his influence to reach other publicans with the reality of Christ being their Messiah. Perhaps he was just so excited that he had to tell everybody. Perhaps he was just doing what he did, which is to invite his friends when he has a feast. Either way, many publicans were invited, as well as many others, and they sat down with Jesus over a meal. We read in verse 30. But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do ye eat and drink with publicans and sinners? This scenario is deeply troubling to the scribes and to the Pharisees, and in a manner of speaking, rightfully so. The Mosaic Law called the people of Israel to separation from sin. They were a come-and-see people who would enfold into themselves and be prosperous, and they thought... Their prosperity um, was based specifically on that, and, and, and they weren't all that interested in thus reaching out to the world around them. The religious leaders of the day had taken this too far. They had gone so far as to completely shut out anybody who was not like them. But the concept was somewhat natural in light of the strict nature of the law that they needed to come out from among the world, and be separate. And here is one situation where they're deeply troubled. Jesus is eating and drinking. It's one of the most intimate forms of fellowship. And he's eating and drinking with Levi and the publicans. A great company, the text says, of publicans and sinners. You know who these publicans are. We've talked about who these publicans were. Who are these sinners? Could be the same people, publicans and sinners being the same. Or it could be two different groups. They're is not much in Scripture about this label of sinners. The Jews saw anybody who was not faithful to the Mosaic Law as sinners. Uh, Prostitutes were often called sinners. That's what they called them, just sinners. And these scribes and these Pharisees saw a group of people there, publicans and sinners, who they naturally had no desire to be around. They had no desire to interact with because of their lifestyle decisions. They had effectively cut those people off. They're not good enough for us. They are not following God. And the scribes and the Pharisees ask this question openly. They ask the question, why do ye eat and drink with publicans and sinners? Notice the pronoun. Why do ye? In our King James Bibles, when you see a ye or a your, the pronoun is second person plural. When you see a thee or a thou, the pronoun is second person singular. Second person singular talking to one person. Second person, plural, second person plural talking to many people. So here, the scribes and Pharisees are talking to a group of people. Why do ye? He's speaking to Jesus' disciples. It's significant that they ask the disciples rather than Jesus himself. Because the disciples were probably just as uncomfortable as they were. They were probably sitting there. You've seen people when they sit kind of uncomfortably and they're kind of rigid and they don't really know what to do and it's really awkward and they're really uncomfortable. Maybe uh, some of you are going to be sitting around family this Thanksgiving and it's going to feel kind of that way for you. Um, or, or maybe uh, you'll be invited to someone's house that you don't really know around Christmas time and you only know one person and everyone else is there and it's going to feel kind of awkward. The disciples were probably sitting around in that sort of a, a, a posture They're around these publicans and sinners. 
They know that they're not supposed to do this according to the Jewish tradition. The scribes and the Pharisees are there. What is Jesus doing? He's just called this publican to follow him. He's got this publican now that's a part of the group. This is really, really uncomfortable. They've left all and they followed Christ. And the first thing Christ does is call publicans and sinners unto him. So they, the scribes and the Pharisees ask the disciples, what's going on here? And Jesus takes, upon it, takes it upon himself to answer in verses 31 and 32. And he says this. It's a beautiful phrase. He says, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The very essence of the work of Jesus Christ. He came as a physician to heal the sin sick. He came as a herald to call sinners to change their thinking about their sin. So Jesus is eating with publicans and sinners. Why? Because they're the ones that need him. But there's another element to it. It's not just that they need him. Not only do they need him, but they are willing to listen to him. Pastor, where are you going with this? Well, simply this. The publicans and the sinners were sin-sick men that needed Christ. But so were the scribes and Pharisees, weren't they? They were sin-sick men that needed Christ as well. The publicans and sinners were living in open sin. They obviously needed the truths of the Word of God. But Jesus' ministry, all throughout His ministry, teaches us the reality that the scribes and the Pharisees were in just as deep and dire spiritual danger as the, Pharisees, or as the publicans and sinners. They needed Christ just as much. So what was the difference? Well, the difference was the scribes and the Pharisees didn't think they needed him. They didn't know their own sinful hearts. They didn't believe it. They were so convinced of their personal righteousness that they listened to Jesus and saw his ministry and said, that's good for them, but we don't need that. It's good for everybody but me. Yeah, yeah, Jesus, you tell them about hypocrisy. Yeah, Jesus, you tell them about self-righteousness. Yeah, Jesus, you tell them about sin because they all need it so much without even contemplating for one moment that their heart was just as dark. The publicans and the sinners were openly immoral to be sure, but at least they knew that they had a need and were willing to listen to Jesus present the solution. Jesus had to get the scribes and the Pharisees first to see how sick they were before he could then get them to realize they needed to be healed. We'll talk more about that in our application today. Verse 33, this text tells us, And they said unto him, Why do the disciples of John, this is a separate account now, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise the disciples of the Pharisees, but thine eat and drink? So the scribes and the Pharisees are asking another question of him now. He answered the question, Why are you eating with publicans and sinners? Because they that are whole need not the physician, but they that are sick. I came to call sinners unto repentance. Now they ask him, uh, not, not the disciples, but this time him. Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast often, but not yours? How do we know they're speaking to Jesus specifically this time? Did you see the pronoun reference change? When the disciples were being spoken to, ye, your. Now in verse 33, it's thine Thee, thou, thine, that's, first per, that's second person singular, speaking to one man, speaking to Jesus Christ here. They're asking him this time, why aren't your disciples fasting? Our disciples are fasting. John's disciples are fasting. The controversy here, the first controversy being, why are you intermingling with sinners? This controversy is, why aren't you keeping the traditions? Why are you lacking the observance of the Jewish traditions which both the Pharisees and John's disciples recognize? And as an answer to this question, Jesus gives an illustration. And he says this in verses 34 and 35. Can ye make the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. The illustration is of a wedding feast. 
Now, we preached just a couple of months ago on the biblical concept of fasting. Fasting is tied deeply to petition, to asking or making a request, and it's also tied deeply to mourning. Mourning over sin, mourning over circumstance. It's a mournful request. It's a mournful desire of the Lord for Him to hear us and for Him to regard us. And Jesus asks, Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? Is the time of mourning the time when the groom is with you? When you're preparing for the wedding? When he has come to invite his bride? Is that really the time for mourning? He says it's not. The image of Messiah being the bridegroom of the nation is taken from several Old Testament passages. One of which being Hosea 2 verses 19 and 20 where we read this. And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness and thou shalt know the Lord. God promises that he will marry Israel. He will betroth Israel to himself. That he will be a bridegroom to them as the bride. Jesus says, I'm the groom and I'm coming to call my bride. The children who know me are celebrating that I've come. They're celebrating that it's time to call the bride. This is not a time for mourning. It's a time for delight. It's a time for celebration. The bridegroom has come. But then his statement takes a very somber tone. He has warned already the Nazarenes that he would be rejected several chapters ago. Like in Nazareth, as you watched that group, a group of men and women with whom he had grown up, reject him and never see any of his works because of their unbelief. Like in the days of Elijah and Elisha who were rejected of Israel so they had to go to the Gentile world to be received. Jesus now tells them that though this moment is a time of rejoicing, for the bridegroom has come, there would come a time when the bridegroom would be taken away and his disciples would then mourn. They would then fast. And this statement would have probably been quite startling. If the bridegroom had come, if the Messiah who had taken his bride, who had called his bride has come, well then where would he go and why wouldn't he take his bride with him? Well, because he would have to go to prepare a place for his bride. He will teach that later. This was not yet for them to know, but there was coming a day when he would be taken away from them. And then Jesus gives a parable, beginning in verse 36 through the end of the chapter, verse 39, and he says this. He spake also a parable unto them. No man putteth a piece of new garment upon an old. If otherwise, then both the new maketh a rent, and the piece that was taken out of the new agreeeth not with the old. And no man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine will burst the bottles, and be spilled, and the bottle shall perish. But new wine must be put into new bottles, and both are preserved. No man also having drunk old wine straightway desireth new, for he saith the old is better. When we consider a parable, we need to understand that parables relate a story with a single point. Whereas an allegory has many points based upon many points of, of um, similarity, so in an allegory, everything in the story means something. In a parable, it doesn't have to be that way. A parable, many things may mean something, or only one thing could mean something, and everything else is just supporting. And in a parable, there's one main point. Everything drives toward one point. The parable takes a familiar concept and uses it to illustrate an unfamiliar. It takes a known quantity and uses it to relate to an unknown quantity. So we begin this parable and then we explain the meaning. Jesus uses two illustrations. First, he uses the illustration of a piece of cloth, a garment. And Jesus says, no man takes a new piece of cloth and puts it on an old garment, seeks to patch an old garment with a new piece of cloth. And the reason is because fabric shrinks. It contracts. It can stretch. Fabric 
um, doesn't have the same properties over time because the fabric is woven and it can shrink and contract with washing and such and, and just, just wearing. If, uh, everybody that wears jeans knows this, right? You pull your jeans out of the dryer and you put them on. You're like, man, these are tight. And then you wear them for a few minutes and they loosen up a little bit. Jeans loosen up over time so much so that you don't want to wash the jeans, right? Because they're so comfortable and they, they feel good. And, 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 and so the fabric tightens and then it loosens. And, and this is what fabric does. So Jesus says that you don't put a new patch on an old garment. And the reason is because if you sew a new patch into an old garment, then the two fabrics, even if they're the same type of fabric, are going to have different consistencies. One old is one is new. One is new. And as the fabric, as the new fabric shrinks, it's going to rip the old fabric. And the rent will actually be made worse. That the old fabric is going to be torn. It's not going to be torn at the stitches between the new and the old, right? Because the stitches won't tear out because the stitches are new. The new fabric is strong, so it's not going to go bad. But the old fabric is probably thinner. It's older. It's weaker. And that's what's going to tear. Jesus says we don't do that, do we? Then he gives a second illustration. And he speaks of old wineskins. Now, in the King James Bible, he, it uses the word bottles. It's not a bad translation as long as we understand that a bottle can be made of something other than glass or clay. In this sense, the idea is a leather or a goat skin bottle for holding liquid, but it's, it's leather or it's, it's a, a, a goat skin. And this helps us understand the parable. No man puts new wine into old wineskin bottles. And the reason is because as that grapefruit ferments, it releases fumes. And those fumes will build up pressure. This is why if you take the cork off of uh, a wine or off of uh, even um, sparkling grape juice or whatever, if it's carbonated or whatever it might be, this is why when you open a can of pop, after you've shaken it, you, you get fizz and such because there's pressure building up in there. When you pop that cork, that cork shoots. Why? Because there's pressure that's building up in there over time. Now, if you were to take new wine and put it into old wineskins, the wineskin is old, so it's getting dry. It's not as flexible as it used to be. Leather stretches, but old leather is dry and cracked and it doesn't stretch. So if you put new wine in old bottles, then as that wine ferments, it will break the bottle. It will crack. It will burst. And you'll lose all the wine because the leather will not stretch. It will only crack, dry out, and then break. And those are the two illustrations. In these two illustrations, we find one concept, one meaning, that you can't take something new try to squeeze it into something old and expect anything other than problems. Now carry this concept over into the controversies which Jesus has had with the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus is eating with publicans and sinners. According to the tradition of the elders, these people are to be shunned, not to be engaged. These people are to be, they are to be rejected. Jesus' disciples are not practicing the regular habits of fasting something which the tradition of the elders set up to do quite regularly. Zechariah 7 and 8 speaks of fasts on the 4th, the 5th, the 7th, and the 10th month of every year. There are, in Jewish customs, seven fixed fast days in any given year, with the possibility of some 25 more fast days, depending on a person's piety or depending on the traditions that they follow. Discipline fasting was also a thing in the day where once every couple of days, a couple of times a week, they would fast simply as an outworking of piety. We see this in Luke chapter 2, verse 37 with Anna, who is the prophetess living in the temple, ministering to the Lord every day with prayer and fastings. So Jesus says that this newness, this newness of him sitting with the publicans and sinners, this newness of them not fasting for this time, this newness cannot fit into the old garment or the old bottles of their Jewish traditions. Now, take special note, this does not mean that Jesus did not do what the law said, that he did not, that he lived contrary to the moral expectations of the law. He did not. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 tells us, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, 
that we might receive redemption, the adoption of sons. Excuse me. He came under the law. He observed the biblical feasts. He did not reject the observance of the law. He did not spurn or scorn the law. But Jesus was coming to usher in a new dispensation of grace. God was about to change the scope of his revelation and his redemption. And Jesus was there to initiate this transition. And he made it clear that this tradition was not going to be a merging of their thinking with his thinking. There was not going to be some yin-yang assimilation here. We were not talking about um, the, the old and the new merging. Uh, as the Hegelian dialectic calls it, the thesis and the antithesis coming together to form a synthesis, if you're familiar with philosophy. We're not talking about that. Jesus said, I'm not doing that. You can't stick my newness into your old bottles. You can't stitch my new cloth onto your old garments. If so, it's just going to rend everything and make it all worse. It's just going to be a mess. Paul describes the difference in Romans chapter 7. He says in verses 5 and 6, For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in the newness, a newness of spirit, excuse me, and not in oldness of the letter. Newness of the spirit, a whole new thing, a new way, new wine, a new garment. Not serving under the harsh taskmaster of do's and don'ts, driven by fear and guilt but serving under a gracious Father who you long to serve, who you love to obey because you love Him and you know that He has your best in mind. But then Jesus says this right at the end in verse 39. No man also having drunk old wine straightway desireth new, for he saith the old is better. Jesus admits something very important here. Those who had been drinking old wine don't directly want new wine they'll say that the old is better. Have you experienced this, perhaps with your children or even you, where um, you've... Um, when I was in college, uh, there was a buffet that we would eat at. And in that buffet, they would have fruit every day. And they would have bananas. Well, one of the things about this buffet was that they saw fit to buy the bananas, of course, very green. And then they would, they, would, they would put them out, and when they put them out, they were still very green. So for the several years that I was in college, I ate green bananas. And literally, like, you take it, and it's a little crunchy green, right? So that was the banana. And so I would eat these excessively green bananas. And then I would go home over vacation, and my mom would get bananas. And I'd bite it, and I'd say, whoa, something is weird here. It's not crunchy. It's a little bit sweeter. It feels so soft. And you almost recoil a little bit. Now, the yellow banana was better, but I had become so accustomed to the green banana that the, the, the yellow banana tasted strange to me. It took a little bit for me to get used to it again. Once I got used to it, I agree. Yellow bananas are significantly better than green bananas. It's like that. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's human nature. We've all experienced this, right? Where something new comes in and we don't like it just because it's new. We don't like it just because it's different. And you might learn to like it or you might offhand straight up reject it. And your kids are saying, Mom, Dad, come on, get with it. This is so much better. And you say no because you're comfortable with the old. This is human nature. It's our human tendency to gravitate towards that which we're used to, that with, with which we're comfortable, compared to that which is new, even if it has notable advantages. In the same way, Jesus understands that his new way is not going to immediately taste good to the Orthodox Jew who has been familiar with the law. Much rather, they will feel like the old way is better and they will wonder why Jesus can't just present his new methods in the context of the old way. Why can't you just stick with the law? You say you came to represent it. Just stick with what we do, our traditions. Jesus says you can't do that. You can't fit what I'm going to teach you into your old way. These new methods demand a new context. The idea has not changed. Belief unto righteousness, love God and love thy neighbor. Those ideas are transcendent. The law was not rejected in Christ, but 
rather broadened. The scope is broadened. The context has changed. And you cannot fit Jesus' newness into the oldness of the letter. The writer of Hebrews would say it this way. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 20. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. When Jesus died, the veil that separated the holy place from the holiest of all was rent in two, signifying that every man now has access to the throne of God. And so we use this with boldness. This is the new and living way. You can't fit Jesus' new and living way into the oldness of the letter. You can't somehow keep the curtain drawn between the holiest, the holy place and the holiest of all and still have unrestricted access. The curtain has to be torn. It has to be torn down. And Jesus says it's going to have to be this way. The new garment can't be sewed onto the old. The new wine can't be put into the old wineskin. And that's the message. And as we take this message and bring it back to today, I want to do so through two concepts through two applications this morning. And they're both going to have to do with Jesus reaching out in this new and living way. Point number one, don't enfold. The sin sick need Christ. Don't enfold. The Jewish community had by nature the Mosaic law and the design of the nation enfolded into itself. As I mentioned earlier in the message, this was understandable. It was even natural as the law made Israel such a unique nation set apart from the world around in every way, called to exemplify the joys of serving the true and the living God through their material prosperity and through peace. But God never intended the idea of rejecting sin to extend to rejection of the sinner. And this is what had happened in Israel. And indeed, it's a temptation for us as well in every age to reject not only the sin, but to reject the sinner. The temptation is not always uh, improper in its motivation, but it is always improper in its outcome. And what do I mean when I say that? What do I mean by saying it's not necessarily improper in motivation? We talked about it a little bit in Sunday school this morning. Our desire to reject the sinner can stem from either a right reason or a wrong reason. A legitimate motivation for separation generally fosters balance in our lives. We separate from openly sinful people when they're doing openly sinful things because we know that openly sinful people do openly sinful things. In certain situations, we avoid sinful people because they could lead us into sin. But this attitude doesn't stop the morally righteous from association on any level with sinful people, only avoiding sinful situations. In other words, when I was in high school, I went to public high school, I didn't avoid having friends with anybody who was not a believer. But I sure knew not to go over to one of their houses on a Friday night. I didn't avoid sitting with them at the lunch table, enjoying their company, going to a neutral third-party location where I could control when, when I left and how I left and the conditions upon which I operated. But I wasn't going to go over to their house on a Friday night and drink their punch. Because I didn't know what was in it, and I didn't trust them to tell me what was in it. So I avoided the sinful people in certain situations because there was a potential for their sin to rub off on me. But I didn't avoid the sinful people because indeed is that not our calling? So the well-adjusted believer would not go to the strip club with his openly sinful friend for his bachelor party. The well-adjusted believer would not join his openly sinful friends to watch wicked movies. But the well-adjusted believer would certainly eat and talk and work and every other normal and virtuous engagement with openly sinful friends for indeed... They're our mission field. They're why, we're, why, why we are still here. They are our opportunity to reflect Christ, to reach the world. So that's the virtuous motivation. We don't interact with sinners because we don't want to sin. But if that's the case, then we ought to find that balance of not putting ourselves in sinful situations. And when, unavoidably, we do get put in a sinful situation, we flee, like Joseph had to. We choose to walk away at whatever cost because we love God. 
it's more dangerous to have to be put in a situation where you can sin. But it's our calling. Now, the second motivation for not being around sinners is, is far more dangerous and, and a great evil in its, of itself. And we separate from openly sinful people because either we're fearful of them because they're sinners, that we're fearful of their sinfulness, or because we feel a moral superiority to them, that they are not worthy of our time and attention. In this sense, we feel as though our association with them, not their sin, but our association with them makes us somehow unclean, somehow taints us. That just because we're around a sinner, we are somehow sinful by association. It's a response of pride, of false judgment. Not only would we avoid being with them in the times where they are openly sinning or bringing others with them into that sin, as we know happens because sin loves company, but we avoid being with them at any time regardless of the activity because they are somehow in and of themselves unclean or because we are so fearful of sin, we're so fearful of sin that we don't even want to be around anyone that might possibly sin. And this mindset can cause us to enfold so that rarely, if ever, we interact on a level of any true communication with openly sinful and unbelieving people to where this group, these walls, become not just a resting place but a living place to where we don't leave this place except to go home and not to talk to anybody, only to come back and to talk to people again. Now, we're a small enough group that maybe we, we haven't gotten there yet. If we had triple, double, triple the number of people in this room, it might very well be that we could get away with never associating outside of ourselves. But just because we could doesn't mean we should. And this mindset can cause us to miss our mission field. The commission of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded with you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Jesus says, go, go to them. Go find them and go tell them. When Jesus told Peter, I will make thee a fisher of men, how does fishing work? I went fishing this past Monday. I had to drive to the fishing place. We had to get in a boat. We had to put out our lures and we had to troll around looking for fish. We were fishing for muskie, so you don't... You fish a little differently. Adverb there. You go find them. You go to the place where you, where you expect them and then you try to catch them. We're not going to catch fish very well in this building as far as sinners are concerned. You know how I preach. You know what we believe. Sinners aren't going to want to hang around here for very long on most occasions unless the Holy Spirit's doing something special in their heart. Unbelievers are not going to feel very comfortable. I hope they feel welcome, but they're not going to feel very comfortable around us as a group. So how can a group like this, strongly conservative, believe the Bible is the Word of God, moral, modest, godly, biblical, conservative people, how are we going to reach a world that has left us behind? Well, we're going to have to go to them. We're going to have to go fishing. Leave the house, get in the lake, put some lures into the water. This is our privilege. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is, in the, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. If we aren't living... And telling our gospel, then the lost will not find it. If we hide it, it will not be found. Most of the lost aren't out looking for it. If they're going to find it, it's going to be because someone found them. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict in the hearts of men. We know that. It's not our job to convict the hearts of men. It's not our, our job to convince men of their state. But 
we are the vessels that God uses to show the gospel to others. And if we hide it, we're hiding it from the lost because their eyes are blinded. They're not looking for it. Some, may, some will find it on their own. Some will open a Bible and find it out of curiosity. Some have that initiative. Most do not. All around us, there are men and women on their way to a sinner's hell. It is a matter of life and death. It is a matter of utmost importance. These are lives. These are, this is eternity. I'm going to allow an atheist to describe this from his own perspective for you. I've got a little video clip here. If you're familiar with the man, his name is Penn Gillette. He and his partner have a uh, Las Vegas show called Penn & Teller. And they're comedians. Penn Gillette is an atheist, outspoken atheist, politically active, very crude man, a very brash man, uh, unapologetically atheist. But he had something to say one time that was somewhat startling. He's a, he's a very reasonable man. He, he, he's, a, he's a very self-aware man. And he says this about evangeliz uh, evangelizing the lost. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. Did you hear that? Did you hear what this atheist, this avowed atheist said? This man who has no love or concept of God? He says, I don't respect a man. Uh, and and he, he was giving this account in relation to a man who had come up and given him a gospel tract. And people were angry at that man. Oh, how dare he? And, and, and to that, this man says, I will not respect a man who thinks that there's a heaven and a hell, who is convinced of it, and who will shake my hand and let me walk away without at least trying to get me to heaven. He said, how much do you have to hate a man to interact with him, believing that he's on his way to a, an eternal hell and not do something to tell him? And then he gives the bus, the bus illustration, right? Which we hear, if I knew a bus was barreling down on you, there's a point where I'm going to tackle you to get you away from that bus. If an atheist can understand it, if they can be self-aware enough, can we not? If we believe the Bible, that men and women are blinded by their sin, that the God of this world has blinded their hearts, and that the only thing that can pierce the blindness of their hearts is the light of the truth of God's word through the gospel, and we believe that the Bible is God's means of giving that light, and we believe that God has chosen the voice of His church to declare it, then how selfish must we be to keep our mouths shut? How proud and judgmental must we be to look at those sinners and say, they are publicans and sinners, I'm not going to eat with them, spiritually speaking. To not tell them the truth of their desperate case. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 and 14, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? If you and I don't tell them, who will? If you won't be around sinners, not to say that you should ever engage with them in their sin, but if you won't be around sinners, if you won't shine the truth that you have, the light of your life, into their hearts, how will they hear? How will they know? And if they never hear, how can they believe? And if they don't believe, then they'll spend eternity in a sinner's hell. We could spend an entire sermon walking through the Scripture's call for us to share the Gospel. 
A couple of months ago, we had an evangelism seminar here. Helped you learn how to do that. A couple of those lessons are online. You can go back and look at them. But look, ladies and gentlemen, we, we cannot unfold into ourselves. We mustn't abandon the sin sick to their, themselves. We mustn't just say, well, the world is lost, so let's just unfold. Let's just become our own little community. Let's just leave them behind. We can't do that. We can't do that. We mustn't do that. We mustn't become so comfortable within these walls, behind the stained glass, with our pretty church and our pretty suits and, and looking good and acting good and being around other people that are so good that we fail to come out of our comfort zone to reach the lost with the gospel. And if we do, far from ensuring that our faith remains strong, we much rather stunt the growth of our faith and fail at the most essential and basic task whereby the Lord has left us upon the earth. So don't unfold. The sin sick need Christ. Second, don't assume. The sin sick are often moral people. We speak of those who live in open sin, but let us never forget that Jesus came to call sinners to repentance, and that call included the moral, the scribes and the Pharisees who were judging the publicans and the sinners. They were moral people, but they were just as lost in their sin as anyone else. And we dare not assume that moral people are not sin sick just because they are moral. Morality has never gotten one person to heaven. Did you know that? There will not be one person in heaven because they were a moral person. Religious devotion has never gotten anyone to heaven. Political affiliation has never gotten anyone to heaven. And because we are moral religious people, we might be tempted to be, if I can put it this way, disarmed by other moral people. That if somebody is generally well-favored, kind, has a code of conduct that we're generally less inclined to tell them that they're sinners, or perhaps we don't know as well how, because it's pretty easy to point to a drunkard and say, hey, look, you've got a problem. It's not as easy to point to a, a man who's addicted to materialism and say, hey, look, you have a problem. When he's got his two-car garage and he's got his big house and he's got his two-and-a-half kids and he's got his riding lawnmower and you look at him and say, hey, you've got a big problem, and he says, no, I don't. Look, I'm doing just fine. That, that's harder. It's a harder mission field. But we dare not think that just because they're doing fine, they're not on the wrong side of society's ills, that they don't have a problem. In fact, they need us just as much, and reaching them can be twice as difficult. So Paul would say to the Jews in Romans chapter 2, Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and approvest the things that are most excellent, being instructed out of the law, and art confident that thou art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which hast the form of knowledge, and of the truth in the law. Thou therefore that teachest another, teachest not thyself, thou thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you as it is written. Paul is saying here, look, are you a hypocrite? Are you pretending to be good? Are you being a moral person while having lost the actual, while not actually having the inner compulsion to serve Christ through the gospel. And his conclusion, he lays the foundation in Romans 1 and 2 that he concludes in Romans 3 with these words in Romans 3, 20 through 23. Therefore, he says, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all them that believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're moral or immoral. It doesn't matter if you're real, religious or irreligious. That is not what gets you to heaven. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Thus all need the Savior. No moral conduct is sufficient to a, a Secure eternal salvation. Think of the most moral people in our society today. Mormons. Orthodox Jews. 
biblical Christians. I'd say that's probably the three most moral. We could probably think of some other groups. They all act in similar ways, and in fact, oftentimes the moral passion of Mormons goes well beyond that of biblical Christians, to our shame, doesn't it? But Mormons have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. Orthodox Jews have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, they are lost and they're on their way to a sinner's hell. And we are not. Not because we're special. Not because we're more righteous. Not because God has chosen us, but because we have accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need to hear. Don't just assume that your religious neighbor is okay because he's religious. Don't get lazy and say, yep, I don't want to talk to my religious neighbor because he's a moral person and he might get offended. Whereas if my religious neighbor were stumbling home drunk at two in the morning, at least I'd have the basis with which to scold him. Your religious neighbor is just as sin sick if he has not accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't just regard your moral atheist friend is less of a priority because they don't engage in openly sinful behavior that would make you feel uncomfortable. They need the gospel too. And your efforts to win them, in fact, will need to be more clear and more persistent because they need to be told, they need to realize that they're lost before they can be saved. A man that's drowning is looking for a life preserver. A man that knows he's sinful is looking for the solution. A man that doesn't know he's drowning will never grab on to a life preserver because he doesn't think he's drowning. We've got to convince a large portion of the world, especially around this area, you have to show them that they're lost before they'll ever be ready to accept the gospel. And so let's not assume that just because a person is moral, he is likewise a believer. The condition of salvation is not morality, it is belief in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Jesus would go on to say to these scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 15, Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye compass the sea and land to make one proselyte, one follower, and when he is made, ye make him twofold more a child of hell than yourself. You go around the world with your religious moralism and you find people to, to piggyback onto religious moralism and you tell them that's all it takes and you make them twofold more a child of hell than you. The Mormons are busy about the work of turning people into hell, aren't they? Jehovah's Witness are busy about the work of turning people into hell. They're knocking on doors. They're putting out literature. They are reaching people in every way possible. They're going on short-term missions trips they are doing everything they can to make the proselytes that they will then turn twofold into a child of hell. And we sit very safely in these chairs and we don't tell our neighbors and we don't tell our friends and when religious conversations come up we scoot on to the next topic because you don't talk about religion and politics, right? And we miss it. May God help us. Jesus came operating under a new way of thinking. He knew full well that this new way would be difficult to swallow for the Jews. He's being very gentle with them. He's leading them along softly. He's being very patient, very gracious. But knew it was and there was no way back to the old. The newness of the spirit was vastly superior to the oldness of the letter. And we live in that newness today. We operate in this privilege today. We go into the highways and byways to reach the lost. We are the fishers of men. We seek them out where we may find them. And we support others who do the same. We pray for missionaries who are busy about the work. But we must be about the work as well. Not everyone has the same skills and talents for people. Not everyone has the same opportunities. But to whatever, with whatever you have, with whatever opportunities you're given, with whatever talents the Lord has given you, will you use them to reach out? Because Jesus came and he said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We have a job to do, and it's not just for us to sit here and to learn. We sit here and we learn and we grow for one purpose, 
And that's to go out and to glorify Christ with our bodies that others may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. That's why Christ left us here. That's why he didn't rapture us the moment we got saved. He didn't take us home because there's work to be done. And he's trusting us to do it. As Peter told the council of the Sanhedrin in Acts 4.12, so too we must remember, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. We must tell them, for they must hear. Let's pray.